it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. From the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Wednesday, January 25th, 2023. I'm Guy Benson. Welcome to the Guy Benson Show. Delighted, thrilled, honored to have you here every weekday between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Then around the clock for free on demand, our podcast, GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please follow us if you're on social media, Twitter, Instagram. Our handle there, our account, is at GuyBensonShow. My personal account on both of those same platforms is at Guy P. Benson. Here's our lineup on the show today, Jason Miara's. He is the Attorney General in the Commonwealth of Virginia. He's engaged in a number of investigations based on some of these scandals that we've been talking about in Northern Virginia schools. We will ask him about some of the latest developments. There's a new update, one of the superintendents involved making a denial. We'll get the AG's response to that. Andy McCarthy will join us in our middle hour. Andy is a longtime federal prosecutor. I want to ask him about the classified documents, FLAP, and a few other issues as well. And then Mark Thiessen, former presidential speechwriter, Fox News contributor, Washington Post columnist. He will be here in our last hour. News of the day, a lot of politics to get to with Mark. So we are busy, as always, on this Wednesday here on The Guy Benson Show. I want to begin by playing for you some sound. I've seen this now shared pretty widely on social media among conservatives. Kevin McCarthy, yesterday, I believe it was, got into it a little bit with a reporter who was frankly, a little snotty. She was asking a question to the speaker about committee assignments because McCarthy is moving to exclude a handful of Democrats from certain committees. And the Democrats are mad about it, and therefore journalists are mad about it because journalists are Democrats, right? Just always want to remind you of how that generally works. And so they're using, of course, George Santos as the hook, How can you put Santos on committees when you're not letting these other people on certain committees? And McCarthy, I think, actually did a pretty good job of firing back at this reporter, putting her in her place when I think she overstepped a little bit, and then explaining his rationale. Now, I have a few additional thoughts on this whole kerfuffle about committee assignments, but let's just listen to how this exchange went down then I will offer some additional commentary as necessary. Let's start with cut 14. Here's the question and McCarthy's initial response. Because you have direct power over who goes on intelligence, but you also will be able to create for your whole house, taking off other Democrats, perhaps Representative Omar. But you have said that lying to us is something that means you should be removed from the intelligence committee, but why is it not a factor? He's gone elected by... His district. So, okay, let, let me be very clear and respectful to you. You ask me a question. When I answer it, it's the answer to your question. You don't get to determine whether I answer your question or not, okay? In all respect. Thank you. No, no, let's answer her question. 
So just the tone. It's hard to hear there with the echo, and she's not on mic. The tone is so sneering. And then she brings up the George Santos situation. You all know my thoughts on Santos. I've made my fill of George Santos jokes. I've been quite critical of him. If he gets into legal trouble, then I think a discussion about getting him out of Congress is warranted. Right now, he's just a lying embarrassment and a fraud, which is the job of voters to correct. And I've said my piece on that multiple times over on this show. I've written about it at townhall.com. But, I mean, they are just like making a sport, these journalists, of following George Santos all over Congress. Wherever he goes, they follow him, big packs of them, cameras everywhere, microphones in his face. They love this story. Fine. I saw a bunch of reporters were tweeting photographs. They said, Santos promised us, this was yesterday, a surprise. Here was our surprise. And it was right outside his office with his little placard with his name. It was a little table with Dunkin' Donuts and coffee on it. That was the surprise. Like, should they have been that surprised? I mean, George Santos, according to him, is the CEO of Dunkin' Donuts, after all. But if George Santos, this is the question, if he can, well, what about the, so McCarthy begins to answer the question. She's like, well, you're not answering my question. He says, we're going to answer the question. You don't get to determine whether I've answered it or not. Okay, so, I mean, I think he he reacted accordingly to what she was giving him. And then here comes the answer on substance, how McCarthy thought this stuff through. On one hand, you've got Ilhan Omar, you've got Eric Swalwell, and you've got Adam Schiff. And McCarthy is saying that Swalwell and Schiff should not be on the Intelligence Committee, not off of all the committees, just not on that specific committee, and that Ilhan Omar should not be on the Foreign Affairs Committee. That's the stance that he has taken. Here is why. Cut 15. You just raised a question. I'm going to be very clear with you. The Intel Committee is different. You know why? Because what happens in the Intel Committee, you don't know. What happens in the Intel Committee, although the secrets are going on in the world, other members of Congress don't know. What did Adam Schiff do as the chairman of the Intel Committee? What Adam Schiff did, use his power as a chairman and lie to the American public. Even the inspector general said it. When Devin Nunes put out a memo, he said it was false. When we had a laptop, he used it before an election to be politics and say that it was false and said it was the Russians. When he knew different, when he knew the intel, if you talk to um, John Radcliffe, DNI, he came out ahead of time and says there's no intel to prove that, and he used his position as chairman, knowing he has information the rest of America does not, and lied to the American public. When a whistleblower came forward, he said he, he did not know the individual, even though his staff had met with him and set it up. So, no, he does not have a right to sit on that. He's going through Adam Schiff's various sins and provable lies. McCarthy continues, cut 16. But I will not be like Democrats and play politics with these, where they removed Republicans from committees and all committees. So, yes, he can serve on a committee, but he will not serve on intel because it goes to the national security of America. And I will always put them first, all right? And if you want to talk about Swalwell, let's talk about Swalwell because you have not had the briefing that I had. I had the briefing and Nancy Pelosi had the briefing from the FBI. The FBI never came before this Congress to tell the leadership of this Congress that Eric Swalwell had a problem with a Chinese spy until he served on intel. So it wasn't just us who were concerned about it. 
the FBI was concerned about putting a member of Congress on the Intel Committee that has the rights to see things that others don't because of his knowledge and relationship with a Chinese spy. They brought it to the works of the leaders. I've got that briefing. By the way, the reporter that he's responding to here and just taking to task, point by point, PBS reporter. So a taxpayer-funded entity. Obviously going to be ultra-anti-Republican. So he makes his points about Schiff. He's like, you want to talk about Eric Swalwell? Let's do that. And then he continues and wraps this up in cut 17. So I do not believe he should sit on there. That committee... And I believe there's 200 other Democrats that can serve on that committee. So this has nothing to do with Santos. Santos is not on the Intel Committee. But you know what? Those voters elected Schiff, even though he lied. Those voters elected Swalwell, even though he lied to the American public, too. So you know what? I'll respect his voters, too, and they'll serve on committees. But they will not serve on a place that has national security reverence because integrity matters to me. That's the answer to your question. All right, so you got like a slow clap from a lot of conservatives in response to that answer. A little chippy, but he made his points one by one. Let me zoom out a second. I think all of this would be a moot point if the Democrats had not done what they did in the last Congress. And when they did what they did, a lot of people, virtually every Republican in Congress, a lot of conservative commentators came out and said, you know what, if they're going to do this, They're going to break tradition and precedent. Then when the shoe's on the other foot, there will be reprisals. What they did last Congress, Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats, when Marjorie Taylor Greene said one of her insane things, and I think Paul Gosar was another one. I think he had put out some meme that they decided was violent. They stripped them from their committee assignments. Cannot serve on committees. Right, that was their decision. The Democrats usually... What has happened, the tradition is in Congress, the parties and the party leadership control who sits on what committee within their party. Right? The Democrats, if they're in power, would control overall, like the running of the committee, the agenda of the committee. They would have the chairman, they'd have the gavel, but the Republican members would be determined by the Republican leaders and then vice versa. That's the way Congress has worked. But, like, oh, well, we're very angry about Marjorie Taylor Greene's bigotry and Paul Gosar's, whatever, cartoon that he shared about AOC, I think it was. They were also gunning for Lauren Boebert. And I'm not a fan of any of these people. Like, I wasn't rushing to defend the political honor of Marjorie Taylor Greene, Paul Gosar, or Lauren Boebert. Okay? It's, like, clearly not exactly my cup of tea, to put it lightly. But you had dozens of Democrats led by the squad saying you got to throw Boebert off of her committees, too. I think it was limited to the, the two people that I previously mentioned, but the Republicans said, this is not appropriate. If we are going to sanction our people within our party, that's our decision. This is a new precedent that you're setting. If you're going to start kicking people unilaterally off of committees from the opposite party just because you're in charge. That's what the Democrats did. So you now have a new standard. And nothing squeals louder in Washington, D.C. than a Democrat being forced to live by his or her own rules. They hate it. They, the reason they hate Mitch McConnell so much, deep down, I think at its core, is him forcing them 
to live by their rules on judicial nominations and all of their really destructive, unilateral, partisan escalations for decades. When McConnell took their standards and their rules and threw them right back in their faces after Justice Scalia died and kept the seat open in 2016, even though Obama was president for a few more months or whatever it was, and then detonated the Reed rule on the filibuster to get Neil Gorsuch on the Supreme Court, which then paved the way for Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett. They went crazy. They went nuts on the left. And all McConnell and the Republicans had to do was say, you did this to yourself. This is what you did to Congress. These are your rules, your standards. Roll the tape. Here's Joe Biden. Here's Chuck Schumer and a lot of them. They hate it. Similar dynamic playing out here where they decide, okay, our base is angry. We're going to give them some scalps. We're going to strip these people of their committees. And he said, all right, well, if that happens, when the Republicans take over Congress, if they win the midterms, which they did, albeit narrowly, there's going to be a move for them to take certain people, sort of some of the most disliked people from the Republican base, and find a reason to strip them of committee assignments. Now, McCarthy's actually backing it off a little. He's not saying that Swalwell and Schiff shouldn't be able to serve anywhere on committees, just not the Intel Committee. And frankly, the case that he makes is pretty good. Right? On substance, if this is what we're doing, right? Marjorie Taylor Greene had said some awful things, including in her past, before she was in Congress. Adam Schiff, as the chairman of the Intelligence Committee in the House, lied repeatedly to the American people about so-called collusion, Trump's collusion with Russia. He continued to propagate the lie even after the Mueller investigation debunked the collusion lie. He is a dishonest, disreputable person. So if you're going to find someone to boot off of a committee, like he's a pretty attractive choice. I know Eric Swalwell says he did nothing wrong with this Chinese spy. She just got into his circle and I guess helped place an intern into his office. There are rumors about the nature of their relationship, Fang Fang. The FBI was concerned enough about Swalwell's involvement with the Chinese spy that there was a briefing, a classified briefing, given to McCarthy and to Pelosi. McCarthy says, based on that briefing, he doesn't think that Swalwell should be have access to sensitive secrets. Doesn't seem too crazy to me. And then Ilhan Omar, of course, just belches out anti-Semitism at the drop of a hat. And then the party, for the most part, covers for her. So these are the people that we're talking about. Specific committee assignments being rescinded. Now they're going to have to vote on it in the full House. McCarthy might not have the votes. There are some Republicans saying we voted against when the Democrats did it. We don't want to be hypocrites. So we're not sure we want to do this back to them. But this is also kind of the play stupid games, win stupid prizes principle in Washington, D.C. If you want to trigger a tit for tat, then you got to be ready when the tit for tat comes back and blows back on you. And obviously, Washington Democrats don't learn their lessons on this stuff, on their escalations. So you have to make those lessons very clear and very painful, or else they'll just take more and more and more. And there has to be a consequence and a cost when they do it. So Pelosi started this. 
Everyone said this would happen when the Republicans took over. There would be a reprisal. That is what this is. And on substance, I'm not really sure that Adam Schiff and Eric Swalwell and Ilhan Omar are the people that the Democrats want to be the face of their party. But they're all feigning outrage. They're so mad about it. Swalwell is uh, extra angry. And, boy, he was uh, hopping mad. And we will play you some audio from him as soon as we come back on The Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Precise, personal, powerful. It's America's weather team in the palm of your hands. Get Fox weather updates throughout your busy day every day. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Even though we have said publicly these smears are bringing death threats, he continues to do it, which makes us believe that there's an intent behind it. But we will not be quiet. We're not going away. I think he'll regret giving all three of us more time on our hands. But at the end of the day, our mission now is to restore the credibility and integrity of this institution of which the speaker has so gravely, so gravely smashed and destroyed. <laughs> I'm Guy Benson. That's Eric Swalwell putting on his very serious face earlier. He's very mad. They, their, their focus, he and Schiff and Omar, they're going to restore integrity to the House of Representatives. Yes, that's the trio I think of when I think of integrity. Quite a few things that could be said there, actually. And he said, I love this standard. The left does this a lot. Oh, they criticize us. That brings about death threats. Therefore, they're trying to kill us. Quite a standard. Now, death threats are terrible. They're unacceptable. Should not happen. These guys criticize right-wingers every day for sport. And they're crazies make threats, and sometimes follow through on them. It's such a cheap way to try to say, I'm immune from criticism because then people criticize me or make threats to me. It's ugly, but it's part of Washington. They do it all the time. Are they going to stop their critiques of Republicans? I think he just put Kevin McCarthy in danger by saying that he's smashing the integrity of Congress. How dare he put McCarthy in danger? Stupid principle or standard. Although not terribly surprising coming from this, shall we say, gas bag. Very self-righteous. But he says, oh, they're going to regret giving us more free time on our hands. Ooh, really? A lot of free time on Eric Swallow's hands. I think Fang Fang might be pleased. Allegedly. The Guy Benson Show, back after this. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you'll subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Back on the Guy Benson Show, GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast free every day. If you go back on this podcast for more than a week, we've been telling you about a brewing controversy in Florida. We were ahead of the curve on this. You knew about it before most people. The advanced placement African American studies controversy. 
and we brought you multiple updates. So here's another factor follow-up. State of Florida, Ron DeSantis and his administration had rejected this proposed curriculum. And the reason, based on what I saw, based on the secret syllabus that had been out of public eye until a few people started sharing it, I was able to obtain a copy. I tweeted about it. I wrote about it. We talked about it here on the show. It's an African-American history course at the high level, highest level, advanced placement in high schools. Right, So there's teenagers. I think in an African-American studies AP class is worthwhile. And I thought most of the curriculum that was proposed and the syllabus was appropriate and interesting, like a class I would be interested in taking. Where I knew there would be problems was unit four, the fourth out of four, where there was something of a pivot away from history to more like a left-wing grab bag of pet issues. Intersectionality and activism, quote-unquote post-racial racism, We talked about that and explained that. Reparations, prison abolition, black queer studies, that kind of stuff. And what DeSantis decided and his team was, all right, if that's going to be included with a bunch of left-wing authors and their writings as the suggested readings, Marxist stuff, anti-capitalist stuff, if that's what you're going to try to inject into the end of the AP course, as written, based on that, no. Our answer is no in Florida. And I told you about this because I wanted to give you some of the actual basis behind this decision. We played some of the sound yesterday from DeSantis, who was defending it to reporters. But the purpose of this, I think, from the left, was to try to draw the type of headlines that, in fact, they were able to easily induce from their allies in the media because ultimately they're all on the same team, right? So they they know how this works. They can predict how it works. So can conservatives, which is why we predicted it. They're going to say, Ron DeSantis is trying to kill black history, ban black history. He's a racist, right? Obvious. And very dutifully, Randy Weingarten, the teachers' union boss, came waddling into the controversy like a fool and lied about it because that's what she does. It's second nature. And she said that Ron DeSantis was trying to erase the entirety of black history. An embarrassing, humiliating, if she were capable of such things, lie. As DeSantis and others have pointed out, black history is required in terms of materials. Right, and in terms of a topic, it is not suggested, it is not allowed, it is required that black history be taught in Florida schools. What the DeSantis administration and the Florida Department of Education objected to was one fraction of a proposed new curriculum that had been until recently publicly kept secret, the contents of it. So they stood their ground, they explained why, their reasons were good. They got the slings and arrows about all the stupid racism stuff from Randy Weingarten and left-wing columnists and a bunch of journalists who want to be left-wing columnists and effectively are. And I was interested to see where this was going to go because he was going to draw the line at Florida and saying, all right, you can come back with a revised offering and then we'll consider it again. This is what they did with the, the textbooks. Remember, there was a big 
freak out. That's all they do with DeSantis. Freak out after freak out after freak out from these people. By the way, as a quick aside, there's a few lefties that I follow on social media. And they tweet a lot about Ron DeSantis. And it's like they're trying to convince themselves. Like, Ron DeSantis is a terrible candidate who has no chance to win nationally. It doesn't matter they won by 20 points in Florida. Florida's very right-wing now. Well, he's part of the reason why it's become more and more red. But they, like, absolutely are like, DeSantis can't win. He's a terrible candidate. That's one thing that they tweet about him and say about him. And the other thing that they do is anytime there's a poll showing Donald Trump leading Ron DeSantis, they giddily talk about the poll and share the poll about how Trump is still the big boss in town. He's the big dog. Look at DeSantis losing. It's not subtle, ladies and gentlemen. Think about what they're doing. Think about what they're telling you. These are leftist Democrats who are insisting that Ron DeSantis is terrible and they're not afraid of him politically because he's a terrible candidate, but they are openly rooting for Trump. Why do you think that might be? Please draw your own conclusions. All right, back to this, because there is an update. I was curious. What is... The college board, the group responsible for the AP courses, what are they going to do? Because they can just say, all right, screw you, Ron DeSantis. You're racist. Florida students won't have an option to have this uh, this course offered to them. But I think that would be potentially risky. Because DeSantis, I think one of the good things about DeSantis, one of the best things about DeSantis, is that when he takes certain bold public stands on things and he wins and he gets a bunch of applause not just from hardcore conservatives but from like normal people other republican leaders take notice and they follow his leadership this is actual leadership so i think the college board probably recognize if desantis is going to draw this line it's not going to be the only state and we're going to have a problem now in other states because i think if you're a republican governor In a lot of places, and you see what's happened here and how this has played out, I think you'd be pretty hard-pressed to say, oh, we're just going to, you know, welcome this course unaltered with all of that material at the very end of the course. We're just going to bring it into our state. I think you would get a lot of pushback. So I think probably the college board was going to have to make a calculation. Might we need to make an accommodation here for Florida, lest this thing become now a state-by-state problem for us? And, lo and behold... Here's the headline from WFLA in Florida. College Board to Update AP African American Studies Framework Rejected by DeSantis in Florida. The College Board, the nonprofit organization that designs and manages the advanced placement courses in the United States, announced the rejected pilot program of their AP African American Studies course would be updated. They said that after the pushback from Florida officials, they will be releasing a revised program framework early next month. So, look, I think it's premature to declare this a total victory because who knows what they're going to put out in a few days. Like, you know, maybe this is a troll and maybe they aren't going to really respond specifically to the stuff that DeSantis has focused on. So this might just be buying themselves a little bit of time and they're going to do something cynical, that's possible. But I think overall, at least initially, this looks like a pretty big W 
for DeSantis and, by extension, for students in Florida. I think it would be worthwhile for 16, 17, 18-year-olds in the state of Florida to have this coursework available to them as an option. I think this is an important part of American history. To have a more in-depth look at it, voluntary, like you don't have to take AP classes, I think it'd be a good thing. But it has to be an appropriate course work regimen. It has to be apolitical and not this vehicle for indoctrination and also like a grab bag of left-wing stuff. The fact that they have already said, like the textbooks, remember the, the textbook I actually got sidetracked earlier talking about that whole firestorm where the DeSantis Education Department rejected a number of textbooks at different age levels in Florida schools because there was some like woke political stuff in there that was driving an agenda. Even in some of the math books, they were like their examples in the math problems were political with a lefty spin on them. And then the DeSantis people said, we're not doing that in Florida. Let's teach the kids basic stuff, how to read, how to write, how to do math, that kind of thing. Get the politics out of there. And the textbook publisher said, okay, they made alterations. They got rid of the political crap. Then they resubmitted, and it was fine, and everyone lived happily ever after. That was another win by DeSantis. I think this might be shaping up to be exactly that kind of win where there's been a firestorm, there's been criticism, there's been this big national controversy, and the college board has said, okay, we're going to take a look at it. We will resubmit a new version of this in early February. Right? If he's able to hold the line, body these people a little bit, get the syllabus improved, clear out some of the most aggressive left-wing stuff in there, and then get this thing approved, I think that is a win-win. And say what you will about Ron DeSantis. And I know that some people on the right take shots at him, whether it's Trump world, because they view him as a threat, or other people who think that they, you know, you know, their guy is going to be, or their gal is going to be better than DeSantis to run for president or whatever it's going to be. The man picks fights that are smart. He knows his stuff. He wages these battles aggressively and accurately. And he wins almost all of the time. Like the guy's putting wins on the board. And this would be an. And that update, that headline, that, you know, the college board came back and said, all right, we're going to take a look at it, stand by for updates. You know, there you go. Meanwhile, in the city of Philadelphia, This is quite a thing. Now, this was uh, yesterday. In Philly, the Union League Club had an event at which they honored Ron DeSantis. Apparently, he has some Pennsylvania ties. They had an event where they honored him. And left-wingers, say it with me now, melted down. That's what they do. The Philadelphia Inquirer, had a number of conniption fits over this. The editorial board put out a whole editorial about how the Union League Club, some private organization in their city, should not honor Ron DeSantis. They called it a step backward for an exclusive club that has been trying to move forward. Okay, thank you, Philadelphia Inquirer. 
Your concern is duly noted. There were protesters outside. As people walked into the event, they chanted shame at them. God, it's just like, who has time for this? With all due respect, what kind of loser do you have to be to show up at some private club outside in the cold with a sign to scream at people because some governor that you don't like is getting an award inside? It's like pitiful. I mean, it's best, I think, understood as a substitute religion. Right. That, that, that that's maybe my best explanation. I saw one member of the editorial board saying that it was uh, disgraceful that the Union League Club in Philadelphia. And by the way, they they basically told all of the critics to pound sand. So good for them. But this guy wringing his hands, I saw him tweeting about how uh, it's such a disgrace that they would honor one of the least honorable people in America. Really? Two hundred and thirty million people in this country. You're telling me Ron DeSantis is one of the least honorable people in the whole country? Uh-huh. War veteran, signed up, multiple tours, volunteer service. Then he became a teacher. Uh, really dishonorable. I mean, they obviously disagree with him. They don't like the stuff that he's done. They don't acknowledge the good things that he's done. Just, you know, indisputably positive developments for the state which is why he won by 19.5 points, not by accident, not only because knuckle-dragging right-wingers like him, because a hell of a lot of other people like him, because of outcomes and results. Also, this is the same editorial board, if I'm not mistaken, that endorsed, I mean, endorses every Democrat, come on, endorsed Hillary Clinton for president? Yes. These are people who care deeply about honor which is why they were all in for Hillary. They, of course, were supportive of John Fetterman for Senate, right? the uh, tax deadbeat who didn't show up for his job. And John Fetterman is the type of honorable man that they're really excited about at the Philadelphia Inquirer, unlike Ron DeSantis. You know, unless I'm misremembering, I think the Philadelphia Inquirer had like an internal revolt in their newsroom, what was it, last year or the year before, where they threw out one of their most prestigious and accomplished editors, who I think had led them to a a Pulitzer. If I'm remembering this Woke Tales episode correctly, he had, this editor, had approved some headline that was effectively criticizing, like, property destruction in riots. And the journalists were like, we're so unsafe because this person allowed a headline that's, I think the headline was Buildings Matter too, Like, don't burn things to the ground. And they were like, whoa. So they threw him out. They fired him for that. These are the people lecturing others about who deserves to be honored or not. Give me a break. In a sane world, and I think close to what we actually live in and exist in, when you look at editorials by newspapers like this, almost no one cares. Like, is there a single person who woke up in the morning just like, you know, I, I was feeling good about Ron DeSantis, but the Philly Inquirer editorial board makes some great points. I don't think so. Another columnist at the Inquirer said, she will never attend an event at the Union League Club again. 
Never invite me to another one, she said. To which I would respond, your terms, ma'am, are acceptable. We'll take a break. We'll come right back. It's The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Welcome back to The Guy Benson Show. Some good news out of the Hawkeye State of Iowa, where Republican Governor Kim Reynolds recently re-elected by a massive margin en route to a clean sweep of the state by Republicans. Just a red wave in Iowa in November. Kim Reynolds, among other things, campaigned on school choice, and yesterday she signed an unprecedented school choice bill called the Students First Act, allowing any Iowa student to use public money to pay for private school tuition and other expenses. For the first time, Reynolds said, we will fund students, not systems. Parents, not the government, can now choose the education setting best suited to their child, regardless of income or zip code. We need a lot more of this. Good for her in Iowa. This is actual progress. Hardest hit are heavily white, rich liberals who oppose school choice. They think they're doing so or they say they're doing so because they support public schools so much. But a lot of those people send their own kids to private school because they're rich enough and privileged enough to do so. Other people who don't have that kind of money, well, tough luck. You're stuck in the government schools no matter what. That's their position. And now the opposite is going to be the law in the state of Iowa. I hope we see good results and more of this around the country. It's a civil rights issue. Another hour of The Guy Benson Show is coming up. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. It is a brand new hour here on The Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening. GuyBensonShow.com. GuyBensonShow.com, our one-stop shop for everything that you might need related to the program, including our free podcast, Every Day On Demand. Still to come, Andy McCarthy later this hour, Mark Thiessen in the next hour. Here's a Fox News alert to get you started in our middle hour with the Dow closing just a hair up after shaking off some big tough sledding earlier in the day. Dow closing up nine points. Finishing the day at 33,743. Joining us now is Jason Miyaris, who is the Attorney General of the Commonwealth of Virginia, my adopted home state. And Mr. Attorney General, it is great to have you here on the show for the first time. We haven't spoken, we haven't met, but I know you've been in office now for a little over a year. And as a Virginian, I am thrilled to have you here on the show. Well, that is great, and like a lot of Virginians, you may not have been born here, but you got here as fast as you could, so I appreciate that. (laughs) Okay, perfect. Uh, So you have been involved in a number of important investigations prying into a story that we've been covering pretty heavily on this show, which is the scandal in northern Virginia emanating from Fairfax County, but I know now it's in a few other counties as well, where students— were not told that they had received a very prestigious and significant academic accolade. And the allegation was that this information was withheld on a critical timeline for 
college application and admissions decisions because someone or someone has decided uh, or had decided that equal outcomes was the goal. It would be unfair and not equitable to let students know that they had achieved something at a very high level. And so the announcements and those, I guess, notifications had been delayed. And it started at one prominent high school in Northern Virginia in Fairfax County, TJ, Thomas Jefferson. Then it was like three schools, then seven schools. Last I saw, it was like 17 schools in the region had done something like this. Give us like the quick background into how your investigation got started and what's the basis for the investigation? Because some people might say, well, that's awful. That seems like, you know, wokeness gone crazy or run amok. Is it necessarily something that the state needs to get involved with, like from some sort of investigative perspective? Talk about the legal side of it, if you would. Well, yeah, I appreciate you having me on. So the, the background on this is we know Michelle Reed, the superintendent of Fairfax Schools, that they engaged a equity consultant. Uh, they paid this individual about $455,000 for about nine months of worth of work. Uh, one of their recommendations to the school district was that they seek equal outcomes for every student without exception. That was their advice, not my advice. Um, they further said that to achieve these mandatory equal outcomes, it may mean that you have to intentionally treat some students unequally. Uh, we have a state anti-discrimination statute in Virginia. It's called the Virginia Human Rights Act. You cannot deny anyone either uh, a, a benefit uh, or a state admission at a school or any any benefit whatsoever based on the racial or ethnic background. We know that from over a thousand students have been affected. We know in Fairfax that over 70% of the students that were receiving a national merit recognition were Asian American. And so this is actually two branches of the same tree as far as the investigation. Uh, you asked how this got on our radar. The actual uh, beginning of this was actually the admissions policy at Thomas Jefferson High School. It is a public high school. It's a magnet school. You have to apply to attend. It is widely considered one of the best public high schools in the entire country. In fact, it was ranked number one recently by U.S. News and World Report. And we started getting complaints from Asian-American parents. Uh, they adopted a new equity, quote-unquote, equity-based uh, admissions policy in which in just one year you saw a 20-point drop in enrollment of Asian-American students, not because suddenly their grades weren't good. is Suddenly they went away from a merit-based admission system to a, quote, equity-based system. And my point has always been that equity without excellence is emptiness. Um, and so what we tried to determine first on the admissions standard and now with this recognition with the national merit is, were, being, were students being denied admission at Thomas Jefferson High School uh, based on the fact that they're Asian-American, and were students being denied recognition uh, because they were overwhelmingly Asian-Americans were receiving that. That goes against everything we believe as Americans. Uh, we've seen this nationally at a lot of, in higher ed, uh, this anti-Asian discrimination. I say it's the only state-sanctioned form of bigotry acceptable in America today. Um, and 100 years ago, Guy, we, we saw with, with these elite institutions uh, they capped the number of Jewish American students were allowed at these these elite institutions. And we look at that, at that now with horror that anybody would think that was acceptable. Um, if it was wrong to discriminate against Jewish American children in the 1920s and the 1930s, it's equally wrong to do that now with our Asian American students. And as one mom told me, my, my nine-year-old daughter has been doing – I mean my daughter is doing everything right since 
since the first grade, since she was nine. And she's had straight A's. And I'm realizing her dream of attending Thomas Jefferson High School is probably going to be denied of her, not because of a lack of hard work, but simply because of who she is, because she's Korean-American. That is just flat-out wrong. If that is true, that violates the Virginia Human Rights Act, and that's why we're conducting our investigation uh, with the Civil Rights uh, Office here in the Attorney General's Office in Virginia. Now, you mentioned the superintendent of Fairfax County Schools, uh, Mr. Attorney General, Dr. Michelle Reed. So she has come out with a denial that the withholding of these National Merit Scholar Awards uh, was intentional or some sort of standardized practice. Cut 22, here's what she said. We celebrate each and every one of our students' unique contributions and achievements, and there is absolutely no division-wide effort to withhold recognition or not to honor hard work um, and achievement. We did initiate a third-party external review into the situation. We committed to contacting all the colleges and universities of the early action, early decision schools that otherwise our commended scholars might not have had that information to notify. Okay, so she said this didn't happen. There was no district-wide effort to do this. But the problem is, unless I'm wrong about this, uh, briefly, Mr. Attorney General, they initially blamed the Thomas Jefferson move, where this was first discovered, on a one-time human error. And since then, it's just been dominoes falling, one principal of one school after another, more than a dozen now, saying, oh, yep, it happened here too. It's hard to believe that this is some sort of accidental coincidence that was like, you know, one human error. It just doesn't seem plausible to me. Well, you're right. They initially said it was an administrative error at a single school. Now that it has gone over to you know, more than a half a dozen schools, um, you know, we, we now know that it's too late for some students. They've already graduated. And I know of at least one Virginia school that offers free tuition if you have national merit. Uh, recognition, and that's worth between ninety to a hundred thousand dollars. And I can tell you, as a child of an immigrant, uh, education is a doorway to the American dream. So many of these students, yep, uh, English is not even the primary language spoken at home. And the idea that this benefit would have been denied to them, they would never have a chance. Well, and not only that, for. and sorry to cut in, we're almost up on a break, but like there were already people rejected from schools. Like decisions were made based on incomplete information, and some of the people saying, "Oh nope, there's nothing here, nothing to see here." They were the same people poo-pooing the massive sexual assault cover-up in Loudoun County that you guys investigated and blew the cover off of. They were saying that was nothing. It was a made-up, phony culture war. That turned out to be very real. Stay on this, please. Jason Meares, the Attorney General in Virginia, our guest on The Guy Benson Show. Taking a break. Coming right back. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. Thank you for being here, and thank you for listening to Woke Tales. Woke Tales. This story made me irrationally angry, probably because it is so irrational and really exemplifies the craven caving to woke mobs that drives me nuts. It's a cancer in our society. National Review has the details. Headline, Video Game Company Caves to Trans Activists' Online Pressure Campaign and Fires Targeted Employee. Seems like the trans activists are particularly virulent and relentless and effective in getting people to knuckle under. 
almost always out of fear, by the way. Here's a story from Caroline Downey. After working for more than two years as the community manager for a popular boutique video game publisher, Carolyn, a young woman, was abruptly fired earlier this month in response to an online pressure campaign launched against her employer by a transgender activist. Her alleged crimes? Enjoying Harry Potter and following some politically disfavored accounts on Twitter. The first domino fell, Carolyn told National Review, when a friend of hers, an influencer for Twitch, the video game live streaming platform, asked his followers for their thoughts on the new Harry Potter-themed game, Hogwarts Legacy. Feelings on the Hogwarts Legacy game? Curious to hear what people are thinking, this ambassador wrote. This is on Twitter in late December. I'm personally looking forward to it. The more I see the gameplay, the more excited I get. It's hitting all the marks I've been wanting for a Harry Potter game, Lynn replied, stepping on a landmine that would derail her career. Renowned British author J.K. Rowling has earned the hatred of many social justice progressives for speaking out against the more extreme demands of the transgender movement, which she argues have begun encroaching on female-only spaces, imperiling women and girls, and denying them a right to fair competition in sports. Because of the association with Rowling, the Harry Potter game and those working on it have become fair game for online harassment campaigns by social justice activists, at least in their minds. All right, so if you can follow this. J.K. Rowling is defending women and girls. Some people say that her form of feminism is transphobic, even though she has very much disputed that, I think, rather persuasively. And therefore, Harry Potter and everything that emanates from Harry Potter or under the umbrella of Harry Potter world is fruit from the poison tree of bigotry, and people are trying to pick off. They can't beat Rowling. She's like, what, a billionaire or something now. Very rich, very powerful, although they come after her constantly. They're trying to cancel anyone who might be involved with something related to Harry Potter who has not roundly denounced the hatred, quote-unquote, of J.K. Rowling. This is what they're doing. The game's original chief designer, Troy Levitt, resigned from manufacturer Avalanche Software and the Hogwarts Legacy Project in March of 2021 after coming under fire for criticizing feminism and social justice on his YouTube channel. Similarly, Sebastian Croft, the voice actor for the video game's protagonist, apologized after he was accused of being transphobic for his involvement in the project. So he just had this groveling apology. Oh, I'm so sorry. I was cast in this project over three years ago, back when all Harry Potter was to me was the magical world I grew up with. This was long before I was aware of J.K. Rowling's views. I believe wholeheartedly that trans women are women. This was his prostration of himself for being a voice actor in a video game for Harry Potter because of the insanity that comes down on anyone, the hatred, the vitriol from these trans activists. So now this woman, who's 30 years old, Carolyn, believes her public endorsement of the Harry Potter game caught the attention, now listen to this, of the pseudonymous Twitter account Purple Tinker, According to the Washington Post, that account is run by someone called Jessica Blank, a transgender woman, 
and founder of BronyCon, an annual convention for adult fans of My Little Ponies, an animated children's television series and toy line. Quote, there is a huge, huge discourse going on in the gaming sphere in which a lot of people are saying, if you support this game in any way, you're also supporting J.K. Rowling. I have this feeling that this is kind of where it stemmed from. Well, obviously. First of all, this is an insane standard. They're treating J.K. Rowling like she's Hitler. It's nuts. Like, oh, if you like Harry Potter, you're a fan of some video game or some show. Or, well, if you haven't thrown all that away and burned it because of the evil author at its root, then you're part of the problem and you're a hater too. This is crazy. The story goes on. Combing through the archives of Carolyn's Twitter, blank, this brony trans person, found a seven-year-old tweet criticizing transgender-inclusive bathroom legislation. Which, by the way, is something you're allowed to do. Especially if you have a thoughtful or measured comment to make, this is what we do in America. You're allowed to criticize things. It's a free country. But this person decided that the tweet was an example of bigotry. This activist then scoured Lynn's social media footprint, trying to find more ammunition to destroy her, discovering, here we go, that she followed Blair White, a transgender right-wing YouTuber, so a trans person, but the wrong kind of trans person, also follows libs of TikTok and other right-wing culture war pundits. So this person, Ms., I don't know what they go by, but blank, posted a roundup exposing Carolyn's political follows. In early January, this racked up hundreds of thousands of views. Oh, she follows libs of TikTok. She follows a right-wing trans person. She's tweeted something that I don't like seven years ago. And my God, she likes Harry Potter. This person should not be able to have a career. So this activist then publicly called her out by name, tagged her employer, said that she follows a veritable who's who of right-wing transphobic creeps. Unless and until she is fired from the company permanently, I am not giving them a single dime. Purple Tinker wrote. And this company, Limited Run Games, keep them in mind, perhaps let them hear from you, Limited Run Games, acquiesced and abruptly terminated Carol Lynn's employment with a severance package. Absolutely pathetic. She was not warned. She wasn't told like, hey, some of your social media activity might reflect on you. Like, here's a warning. I think there could be problems with that to begin with, but it wasn't that, just blindsided. The trans activist said, fire this person for these thought crimes, and the company said, okay, oh, sorry. Out of control. The only way I think these types of companies stop getting bullied from the left, bullied into submission, into this illiberal, outrageous stuff, is to be bullied back in the other direction. I hate that. It's not healthy, but I don't see the alternative. So I think some right-wing bully campaigns, like online harassment, phone calls, all of that, nothing illegal, but huge, angry pressure campaigns, obviously they pay attention to them. And I don't know how unilateral disarmament is the answer here. That's what the left is counting on. And they are relentless. They are ruthless. 
And people like this just end up without a job. How is this fair? It's crazy. And that's Woke Tales for today. Woke Tales. Andy McCarthy is here next on the latest on the document saga. We'll get to that straight ahead. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Halfway through the week, halfway through the show, on this Wednesday edition of the Guy Benson Show, thank you for listening. GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast free every day. And with us now, Andy McCarthy. He's back. Fox News contributor, former federal prosecutor, author of multiple best-selling books. Andy, good to have you here as always. Guy, great to be with you. All right, let's talk about the document scandal. I know you've been thinking and writing and talking a lot about this matter now for a couple of weeks. Before we get to the White House and President Biden, sort of the new wrinkle in all of this is the former Vice President Mike Pence and the revelation that given all of the attention to this issue, he had instructed his attorneys to go and search his house in Indiana for any possible classified information. They found some. He immediately turned it over and copped to it uh, and went through the protocols at that point. Of course, he should not have had that information. What do you make of the Pence development in all of this? And I kind of joked on social media and last night on Special Report that at some point we might run out of special counsels. I know you think that there's not a need for a special counsel in this case. Why? Well, because there shouldn't have been one for Trump. You know, remember, Guy, Trump was being investigated for two years by the Justice Department without anyone, without any problem, without any great suggestion that um, a special counsel was required to do it. There's no – the thing about a special counsel is it has nothing to do with the kind of crime that's under investigation. The two things that are relevant for a special counsel are, one, is there a concrete basis to conduct an investigation? And two, and this is the important one here – is there a profound conflict of interest between the Justice Department and the matter that has to be investigated? And when that arises, it's generally when the Justice Department has to investigate people in its own administration, particularly the president, top officials in the White House, the president's family, that sort of thing. That's what raises the conflict of interest. Garland politicized it because uh, Biden wanted to create the illusion that there was some detachment between him and his Justice Department and Trump because they expect that Trump is going to argue in the campaign that Biden is weaponizing uh, the criminal justice process against his main rival. So to help Biden, Garland unnecessarily uh, appointed a special counsel for Trump. And now, because he also had to then appoint one for Biden, when this thing finally broke under CBS, he kind of left himself no alternative. Now people are saying, well, to be logically consistent, since Pence is running for president, too, uh, you need to have one for Pence. And he doesn't need to have one for Pence. The the mistake here was ordering one for Trump. And I just think the fact that— Well, I get that. I get that's your position, and you've been consistent about that. However— We're not in the theoretical realm of whether something should or should not have happened. The fact is there is a special counsel looking into Trump. There is another special counsel now looking into Biden on this stuff. Based on that reality, 
is there a legal reason why Pence wouldn't necessarily attract yet another special counsel probe on this overall matter of mishandling classified materials or having classified materials that he shouldn't have? Yes, the legal reason is there's no conflict of interest. Under the regulations, you only have a special counsel if there's a conflict of interest. And I hear what you're saying about, you know, the the theoretical level, but this isn't theoretical. This is you have rules. You're supposed to apply them. And the fact that a mistake gets made in one case doesn't oblige you to make the next logical mistake. The idea when you're, you know, digging yourself a hole is to stop, not to keep digging. And, you know, look, today it's Pence. Tomorrow it could be somebody else. Are we going to have, like, a special counsel for every single person? You don't order a special counsel based on what the crime is. You order a special counsel if there's a conflict of interest that prevents the Justice Department from investigating it in the normal course. Uh, there's no reason they can't do that with, with uh, Pence. And unless somebody in the Biden White House is also uh, beset by this problem, I would argue that you don't have a – there's no need to have a special counsel for anyone else. And a special counsel, it's an insidious institution, Guy. I mean, any time we can avoid having it, we should. Now, as for the White House and President Biden's mess that he's created for himself here with just a rolling out of this scandal with a, as I've been describing it, as a drip, drip, drip of their own making, having bungled this and botched it so badly, even though they had months of lead time to put a lid on it and then put it out on their own terms, they still screwed it up very badly. I'm not sure we've heard the end of it. There could be more of these documents lurking maybe at another property. I'm not sure this is over. We'll get to the PR on this and the responses or lack thereof from the White House later in the show with Mark Thiessen, just the optics perspective, the political communications perspective. But on substance, you've made the case that the president's blame shifting and excuses and errant comments here and there are actually making the classified documents issue even worse for him than it would need to be in the first place. Maybe expand on that. Well, you know, I think that any time that you you start to make gratuitous statements that turn out to be false, and especially if you couple that with what I think is the most important thing here, which is what you've just laid out, which is the incompetent way they've handled it, and they've, you know, foisted on themselves a drip, drip, drip effect, uh, which actually makes the problem seem probably a lot worse than it is. I would note, Guy, that we haven't heard. Now, we don't know what's in the subsequently found documents, but you know what we heard was that the first batch had top-secret uh, SCI, you know, the, the very top-secret stuff. The, the subsequent searches, we don't know yet what's in them, but no one's reported that it's like that kind of serious stuff. So, well, we've heard nothing, reason- though. I mean, they've kind of stonewalled any serious question about it. That's maybe part of the reason. I think that they were sitting on a bunch of information for months, dating back to pre-election, right, early November of last year. Some of these other discoveries are more recent, and all we really know about it is dribs and drabs and statements being put out, frankly, by the president's own lawyers who have an interest in shading things in the favor of their client. Yeah, I think, Guy, though, that this is because they never intended for us to find out about this in the first place. The Mm -hmm. reason they're flat-footed and the reason they're behind is they hoped that they were going to be able to tuck these documents into the National Archives. They hoped they were never going to have to cop to to the thing they found in the garage. And they were not prepared for CVS to break the story. 
And then when they try to get their ducks in a row, lo and behold, you get more classified information emerged, and now they're behind the curve. So they're yeah. scrambling. Uh, and the other thing is what's, what still remains mind-boggling to me is how the Justice Department signs off on having people who don't have security clearances do the subsequent searches and not having the FBI uh, involved from the get-go. It just doesn't make any sense. And all we heard with respect to Mar-a-Lago is that every time a document of this nature is missing, the intelligence community, including the FBI, have to get right on it and do a damage assessment so we can see if we have imperiled sources of information or compromised methods of information. And I don't see that any of that was done here. Well, that was part of Biden's specific critique of Trump on this. Of course, in that clip that has been now played over and over again from CBS News, dating back to last year in the Mar-a-Lago matter, uh, that's being used against Biden. Then Pence's answers in a different interview on ABC now being used against him. I mean, it really is kind of a comedy of errors. I quoted on the panel last night with Brett Bayer, Casey Stengel, Andy, you might appreciate this, from the 1962 Mets, infamously you know, one of the worst professional sports teams ever. Inaugural season, they lost 120 games. And uh, Stengel looked around at one point and was said to have put out just a gem of a quote, paraphrasing, can't anyone here play this game? And I feel like that's the sense that I get about our political elites now in both parties considering this totally embarrassing cascade of revelations starting worst with Hillary Clinton, but then also now engulfing Trump, Biden, and Pence as well. Can't anyone do this properly? Yeah, and and maybe the answer is uh, in the aftermath of this, things will change. But up until now, the answer is no. And I think the reason, Guy, is that uh, what's clearly happening here is that Lower-ranking officials who have security clearances are getting documents for high officials like the president and the vice president and secretary of state, and they're afraid to ask for them back. You know, Obviously, what's going on here is like if the president wants to review something and he wants to keep it up in the residence or he wants to do things that the intelligence community wouldn't approve of, who's going to tell him he can't? Mm-hmm. Or the secretary of state. So what ends up happening then is that these documents get – mishandled they get you know left in places they shouldn't be they get strewn among other documents and then in the chaos of packing up uh, an administration and leaving or packing up an office and leaving uh they're taking stuff along that they should yeah, and, and that uh, may I, well be the case yeah, at least as an explanation for some of this uh, of course it does not pertain at all to hillary clinton and her actions with the private email server that was a horse of a different color and i think uh, the worst of the bunch for a number of different reasons and he's shifting gears Putting on your old prosecutor hat, a few stories to run past you. At long last, some pro-abortion extremists have been charged with these attacks, at least some of the attacks, on pro-life centers and churches. There had been a whole string of these, like an epidemic of attacks by far-left people in the wake of the Dobbs decision for many months. We got no arrests, no charges. Now two Florida residents have been indicted. I wonder, in your mind, is this just the beginning? What should they be charged with? Is there a good chance that the DOJ really throws the book at them, given the extent of this problem? And Christopher Ray at the FBI revealing in testimony recently that since last spring, 70 percent 
of abortion-related violence and threats have come and emanated from the political left. Where do you see this going? Uh, I, I think they're making a splash, Guy, because we're through the elections, um, and you know they'll they'll tr- they'll prosecute these cases. I don't think they'll throw the book at these people. That's not their pattern. Uh, their pattern is when you're dealing with left-wing activists, whether they're you know radicals who throw Molotov cocktails at uh, at squad cars or what have you. Um, you know they grudgingly do a few cases when they feel like they have to, but then. You know, when they think no one's looking, they intercede and try to go lenient. So I, I wouldn't expect that pattern to change. I'm not surprised that they're doing these cases in January instead of November or October because of the election cycle. And then this case in New York City that we've been covering quite a lot here for the last few days because it involved one of our colleagues at Fox, Adam Klotz, weatherman, who was badly beaten on the subway on Saturday night. And at least... Up till this point, I know it's still ongoing and they're gathering more information. I think some of the public pressure is forcing the officials in New York to maybe take this more seriously. But the initial posture in New York City was, okay, we caught some of these kids, some of these teenagers who were engaged uh, in the attack. We uh, gave them some juvenile papers and then released them to their parents, and it's going to be hard to charge them with anything. And a few of the quotes suggested that, well, this is really just misdemeanor behavior. These are minors. The law ties our hands in some ways. You know, Andy, if you look at the actual fact pattern of what happened, at least one of these teenagers in the pack, there were more than half a dozen of them, was lighting up a joint, so openly doing drugs in public. Then, allegedly, according to Klotz and other witnesses, he took the lighter, he took the flame, and lit an older man's hair on fire, seemingly just for fun. And this man was then trying to extinguish the fire on his head, which is obviously a very scary experience. And when Adam Klotz, our colleague, the meteorologist, just objected mildly, saying, hey, you can't do that, they then turned on Adam. Someone punched him in the face. Adam then left along with everyone else in the car to go to another car to de-escalate. At the next stop, the teenagers then came running into the other car, ambushed him and beat him and kicked him and stomped him and sent him to the hospital. You look at those series of events, I really struggle to understand how you could say these are misdemeanors, we're not really sure if it's appropriate to press charges, even if you are a totally equity-minded you know, social justice type person who feels like, you know, children, quote unquote, or minors should never be really prosecuted in a serious way. That is a really disgusting incident that involves, at least to my novice eyes, multiple crimes, some of which are very serious. You're the prosecutor. What's your take? My take, Guy, is that they've changed the laws in New York on the basis of an abstraction, which is this idea that you just alluded to, that uh, if you haven't hit 18 yet, then no matter what you do, uh, we're, we're, we're somehow the bad guys if we apply the law to you. Uh, and that's the crazy theory under which they did criminal justice reform, uh, or what they called reform, post-George Floyd. And well, a lot of us at that point, um, you know, we didn't – obviously, we didn't think in concrete terms that this was going to affect somebody that we know – but we did say, you know, you're, you're inviting exactly this kind of uh, atmosphere, and it's the reason that people are leaving New York in droves. They've now tied their hands 
uh, in a way that it becomes very difficult to to do these cases. And when I was a pro when I was a federal prosecutor, we didn't have a lot of jurisdiction um, to go after you know violent intra city crime uh, unless it unless it was uh, you know tied to something we had jurisdiction over like racketeering or mm -hmm. something. But um, you know when you have a young person who commits a minor who commits a violent felony, uh, very frequently, at least in our system, uh, those people were prosecuted. They were treated as adults, and they were were prosecuted. What the state has done is gone in the other direction, and they've actually raised the age. It used to be at least when you were 17, uh, if you committed a violent felony, you were treated as an adult. They raised the age on that uh, after George Floyd, and it was this whole idea that uh, you know incarceration is the problem, and the real problem is that there are too many recidivist offenders and violent offenders and gang yep. offenders who belong behind bars and aren't. Well, and you're also teaching them that they can get away with things. And that's why you're seeing, especially among younger people, a huge spike in violent crime committed by teenagers. Incentives matter. And the incentive and the result now is lawlessness, impunity, arrogance, and more crime and more victims. And I know some people look at that and say, good, that's justice, that's equity. I think an awful lot more people say, no, this is unacceptable. We'll see if any changes come in Albany or elsewhere. We've got to leave it there for now. Andy McCarthy, our guest, our friend, Fox News contributor, former federal prosecutor. Andy, we'll talk again soon. Thanks so much, Guy. We'll step aside, come right back on The Guy Benson Show. Guy Benson will be right back. Back on the Guy Benson Show, we went super long with Annie McCarthy, so crunched here just a little bit. Yesterday, we told you about the University of Georgia poll showing that 0% of black voters in Georgia said they had a poor voting experience, despite all of the lies and slander about voter suppression and Jim Crow. The poll showed that Georgians had a very good, fast, easy, appropriate voting experience. Vindication for Governor Kemp. More vindication for Governor Brian Kemp in Georgia. A brand new poll out today, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, finds his approval rating as governor at an all-time high, soaring to 62%. He's above water by 30 percentage points. The truth winning in Georgia, at least for Governor Kemp. Kudos to him for telling the truth and doing his job. Final hour of the Guy Benson Show coming up next. Mark Thiessen is here. Don't go anywhere. Five o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It's the Happy Hour on the Guy Benson Show. Wednesday edition. Thank you so much for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast free on demand every day when the show is over. GuyBensonShow.com or FoxNewsPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on social media at Guy Benson Show, Twitter, Instagram if you'd like. This hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Fantastic. I told you yesterday we have our new shipment that just came in. We're very excited about that. You should try it if you haven't already. 
21 plus only, always drink responsibly, thelongdrink.com, thelongdrink.com. With us now, Mark Thiessen, columnist at the Washington Post, Fox News contributor, fellow at AEI, and former chief speechwriter to President George W. Bush. Mark, it's always good to have you here. It's good to be here, but I'd love a finished long drink. Why don't you ever give me these things? Well, I mean, you you were invited, in fairness, you were invited to our Christmas party. You were unable to attend. That is true. That and is we true. did have the party, like, unofficially sponsored by the long drink. So we had a bunch of it. It was gone by 11 p.m., though. People just drink large quantities of it. At some point, we'll have to get you over here, and we'll have to hook you up because it is absolutely delicious. Now, in the meantime, you and I just recently, I think last week, we were together on the special report panel. You had some harsh, but I would say fair truths to share with the audience about the president's spokeswoman, Corrine Jean-Pierre. And since you made some of those comments, there's been this drumbeat of criticism, even private sort of backbiting, off-the-record or background comments from journalists, really savaging her performance. The last couple weeks have been rough for this White House, rough for the administration, rough for the president. They're not really giving her very much to work with at all. Biden is not helping his case or her case at all. That being said, the tactic that I guess they've settled on to just refer every question about this scandal to someone else is almost comical. Here's just a tiny montage, a fraction of these types of quotes from yesterday alone. Just put it on repeat day after day. Cut four. I'm just going to refer you to Department of Justice. On your second question, I would refer you to the White House Counsel's Office. Again, I would refer you to the White House Counsel's Office. I'm not going to comment from from here on that. I would refer you to the White House Counsel. I would refer you to the White House Counsel's Office. President Biden went to his house in Wilmington. What was he doing in there? I would refer you to the White House Counsel. So it was something relating to this case. I would refer you to the White House Counsel's Office. We know the president did it. Why did he do it? I would refer you to the White House Counsel's Office. Mark, I feel like if you asked her what she had for lunch, she might refer you to the White House Counsel's Office. This is just <laughs> ugly. It is ugly. I th- I th- I'm waiting for her to just pull out a boombox and put it on the podium and just hit play. <laughs> and it's, have, have the same comment coming out every time. It's like, just shouldn't even have to say it anymore. It's just there. I mean, you know, on one hand, uh, she, she's, she's, she would be incapable of you know, doing the careful uh, dodging and weaving that's necessary to answer some of these questions. So I think putting aside, you know, the the general strategy, it's it's almost essential for her. She can't she can't navigate these questions. She's just not capable of it. She's the worst White House press secretary I've ever seen in my life. Um, she can, I mean, you know, the, 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 she reads everything out of a binder. She has no she can't seem to think on her feet or speak. Uh, clearly, so you know. I guess this is out of necessity. Or, or even read this. out of the binder. Yeah. She struggles with that too. Yeah. No. I mean, Jen. I mean, it's just night and day between her and Jen Psaki. Jen Psaki. I I disagree a lot with Jen Psaki, but she was really good at what she did. Corinne <laughs> Jean Pierre is not. Uh, is it doesn't have a, a modicum of her talent. Well, I think part of the issue, and I've been really ruminating on this a little bit recently, because she's so bad at the job and look she seems like a delightful nice person she's very beautiful i love her makeup i think she has great outfits she obviously has some intelligence she has thrived in other settings this is a different type of job this is a very difficult job she has been plainly just demonstrably ill-suited very ill-suited for this job since day one it's not like she showed a lot of promise And she's been improving. It was very bad from the get-go and has not improved at all. 
And I'm just thinking, if you are an administration, you're a president, and you have someone communicating on your behalf who is that inept, that bad at the job. Brett Baer yesterday said that, you know, he thought Scott McClellan was bad, and now we have this, sort of a, a new low standard in the modern era. Why wouldn't you make a change? Because Biden is not terribly good at speaking on his own behalf. Let's put it that way. So you feel like the person that you're paying to speak on your behalf every single day should be pretty smooth, talented, good at the gig. And obviously that hasn't been the case. It's been painfully obvious for a while now. And I think my theory of the answer, Mark, is part of the reason, if not the main reason that they hired her, is because of all the quote-unquote history she was making, you know, as a female of color, an immigrant, and LGBT. And therefore, not only are they checking a ton of boxes on the diversity celebration front, they're also making it hard to criticize her because you can be accused of a whole lot of different thought crimes for criticizing her work product. But I almost wonder if they've created a little prison for themselves where for those same reasons, it's very hard to get rid of her or to fire her without perhaps attracting the same types of accusations directed at the White House in this case. They've kind of made their bed here. Yeah, too woke to fail. I mean, that's what it comes down to. She, she, they, they, uh, they, can't, they can't let her fail. Uh, no, you're after all. First of all, she's the new Scott McClellan. I'm, I can't wait for her tell-all memoir <laughs> to come out attacking Joe Biden. But, uh, you know, that was, that was, that was his uh, claim to fame. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, you, it, if, if you had a weak presidential spokesman at a time when everything was going great, uh, then that would be one thing. But this White House is beset by so many crises. You know, the, it, she, the, the economy is still terrible. The inflation is still high. Gas prices are still high, though they're getting down. I mean, you've you got the border crisis that's happening, and now you've got this classified document that, and you've got someone who can't think on their feet, uh, who's, who's, who's your spokesman, and the president can't seem to think on his feet and, and, and get his message across either. Well, that, that's so, the other thing, right? Uh, like, that's the point. If things were going better you're right, then her underperformance would be less of an issue. Also, if you had a president who was good at talking, defending himself, engaging, then the White House press secretary role may not be as important, but they're sort of 0 for 2 on those two factors, and therefore they're striking out. I just think I I like your boombox idea. We'll put that under advisement. My suggestion earlier on Varney on Fox Business Network was every day she should just march into the briefing room, hang a sign on the podium, that says, I would refer you elsewhere, and then trudge back to her office, close the door, and crack open a Coors Light. I feel like we would all be as enlightened by that as we are by her actual briefings. First, there's no way that they'd be drinking Coors at the Biden White House, number one. Uh, but two, look, it's, it's, uh, it's a great idea. Uh, the, but, you know, this, this is the thing. This administration is so incompetent in every aspect from the, from foreign policy and the, and the Afghan withdrawal to the economy to the border that it makes sense to have an incompetent press secretary too. It just is, it, is she reflects the it's administration on brand. she serves. She's yeah, exactly. She reflects <laughs> it's the on brand for Joe serves. Biden. It is absolutely. <laughs> you wrote a piece at the Washington post, one of your columns, Mark, about Brett Kavanaugh, basically calling him a hero. And I would like for you to expound on that thesis here, and then I have a follow-up question about Kavanaugh and his fanatical detractors. But why are you positioning the Supreme Court Associate Justice as a hero to our republic, at least in this modern age? 
Well, so, you know, the, the, we just had the first March for Life since uh, Roe v. Wade uh, was, was overturned. And there were a lot of people who had, get a lot of credit for making that happen. Mitch McConnell holding that seat open, the Scalia seat open, getting Gorsuch confirmed, getting managing the confirmation process. George W. Bush gets credit for nominating Samuel Alito, who, who wrote the opinion. Uh, President Trump for, uh, for nominating the per- first president in, in, in my lifetime to have three perfect Supreme Court appointments. Uh, but nobody suffered more personally, went through more personally to make that day happen than Brett Kavanaugh. I mean, this is a guy, when when his nomination came up, they didn't just set out to stop him. They set out to destroy him. And Mm -hmm. I will not even deign to repeat the scurrilous accusations that were made against him. But his daughters had to listen to that. Um, And a lesser man would have just said, this is not worth it. I'm walking away. Uh, And he didn't walk away. He fought back. Uh, they went. They went so far that it backfired on them. They lost control. Of the, they lost the chance to take back the Senate, and that made it possible for uh, Coney Barrett to be confirmed as well. So they made their bed there, but they they tried to destroy Brett Kavanaugh personally. Then you had Chuck Schumer go on the steps of the Capitol and say, "You will reap the whirlwind. You'll regret this day, Brett Kavanaugh." And a few months later, when the Dobbs decision leaked, you had an assassin show up at, Joe, at Brett Kavanaugh's house with the intention of killing him. Um, so this is a man who suffered character assassination and an actual assassination attempt. Um, and he didn't flinch. He did his job. He served the Constitution until he saw fit. And then, you know, I don't think there's a single person who has suffered personally and put up with more personally to do his duty as a public servant in my lifetime that I know of than Brett Kavanaugh. And, Mark, on that front, I don't know if you've heard there's this new movie that has come out at Sundance, and it is a Brett Kavanaugh-themed movie. Obviously, Hollywood being what it is, it is a negative portrayal of him. It is basically taking as fact this premise that he is some sort of you know sexual cretin and uh, an assailant against women and someone who abuses his position. It's all of those scurrilous, completely unproven rumors that they are presenting apparently in the film. I haven't seen it, but it's getting written up in the Washington Post. Like, this is how it works, right? It doesn't matter, for example, if you're Clarence Thomas, if Anita Hill lies about you, is exposed as a liar, the FBI confirms that she lied to them, the public heavily believes you and not her. For decades, they just say you are a sexual harasser or worse. And in the minds of some segment of the population, that becomes a fact. They are clearly determined to do the same thing to Brett Kavanaugh, not just to make it painful for him, but to try to invalidate and delegitimize any decision that he's involved in that they don't like at the high court. So this film is part of that whole project, and there's a detail in it that I just want to address because as long as they're not going to let it go, I'm not going to let it go either because I feel like these points have to be answered. One of the allegations against him, there were four main allegations against him. One of them, the woman who was allegedly mistreated came out personally and said, no, this never happened. Another one was the insane Michael Avenatti gang rape thing. That completely fell apart. Avenatti, of course, now uh, is in prison. He's a criminal. You had Dr. Ford, the main accuser, where there's no evidence ever presented that she ever met Brett Kavanaugh, let alone that this happened. Her star witness, her dear friend, said that she was pressured to lie to hurt Kavanaugh and says she does not believe Dr. Ford's story. Dr. Ford's father agrees. Zero evidence supporting that whatsoever. And then there was this one other one, Mark, that you might remember. 
a woman named Deborah Ramirez, who was a classmate at Yale, and there was some allegation that Kavanaugh had done something very untoward to her at a party in a dorm room or something like that decades ago at Yale. She said these people were in the room. All of the people that she named denied that it happened. Well, according to this new movie, I saw our friend Byron York was highlighting this in the Washington Post. In a previously unheard recording, I'm quoting now, one of these individuals says that classmates told him not just that Brett Kavanaugh did this untoward thing to Ms. Ramirez, but afterward, Kavanaugh went to the bathroom to then do something like this again, returning to assault her a second time, hoping to, quote, amuse an audience of mutual friends. Again, the mutual friends who were named and have all said it never happened. In the new film, Ramirez says she'd suppressed the memory so deeply she couldn't recall this second incident, even when Ronan Farrow explicitly asked her about it. This is the woman who, it was revealed by the New York Times, had to call around to people trying to crowdsource a memory like, gosh, uh, did this happen to me when I was in college? And was it Brett Kavanaugh? And they weren't really sure. Can you tell me what happened? Then she just decided to hell with it. I'm going to blame him. I'm going to say that it happened. Then he did it. And now there's this second allegation from her that she's claiming she buried so deep and suppressed so hard that even when she was asked about it specifically by a reporter, she couldn't remember it. I don't know how these people take themselves seriously, Mark, but they are going to continue this crusade. And I feel like it's incumbent on people who care about the truth to fight back tooth and nail every inch. Well, I appreciate you're doing that. My, I, I'm, I'm taking a different approach, is, which is who cares about Deborah Ramirez? I mean, who is she? She's, she's a nobody. This guy. We, they, well, she's a partisan won. liar. Just to answer your yeah, question, she's exactly. a partisan liar. Yeah, fair enough. But, you know, Kavanaugh won. Uh, we won. They, uh, he, he survived it. He didn't let them destroy him. Uh, it was the, the accusations were so over the top that they made sure that Kavanaugh was confirmed. It, pu- it pushed the fence sitters in the Republican and the Republican Party uh, over to his side uh, and, and con- assured his confirmation. So their strategy backfired on them. Their strategy backfired in the sense that Americans didn't believe the accusations and were so appalled by the spectacle that literally that is why the polls show that that issue was why. They lost a chance to take back the Senate. And as a result of that, we had the kind of majority in the Senate that allowed us to confirm Amy Coney Barrett when, when right. Ruth Bader Ginsburg died. And, and by the way, you know what else backfired on them? Uh, filibustering Neil Gorsuch. Because yep. it was only – Neil Gorsuch was so clearly qualified for that position. And when they filibustered Gorsuch, McConnell was able to go to Republican senators and say they are never going to allow us to confirm another justice again with, with, with 60 votes. And that is what convinced them, the, the fence-sitting Republicans, to eliminate the filibuster for, for Supreme Court appointments. If they had not lost the filibuster then, Kavanaugh would have never been confirmed and Amy Coney Barrett would have never been confirmed. Well, if they had not hit so, the so, nuclear button on the filibuster a few years earlier for their own partisan purposes, they just made one mistake after another. And you're right, ultimately Kavanaugh won. We won. I think most importantly, those wins were due to the facts and the truth being on our side of this equation and not theirs. And they're going to keep muddying the waters and assassinating his character. I understand your approach. Mine is a different approach because they won't stop lying. And so we won't stop responding, at least here on The Guy Benson Show. Mark Thiessen, read his column at The Washington Post. You see him all the time on Fox. Mark, always appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, Guy. Take care. We'll be right back right after this. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show.
happy hour on the Guy Benson Show. Some happy news, a follow-up to a story that we have mentioned a few times here. Quoting now from NBC News, the federal government has dropped charges against a former Afghan soldier who served with U.S. forces and was arrested and imprisoned after having crossed the U.S. southern border. This is according to court documents filed on Monday. Abdul Wasi Safi crossed the southern border illegally in late September after he said he'd passed through multiple countries to reach the U.S. and seek asylum. This man was trained by us, served alongside the United States, risked his life, was promised safe passage out of the country by us because he was in grave danger from the Taliban. We broke that promise. President Biden broke that promise. He put himself at great risk again getting to our southern border, knowing that he had a chance to get in. And unlike all these other people who were either able to get away or caught and then quickly released, he was put in prison, an actual asylum seeker, a bona fide one who deserves our help. It was an injustice that he was in prison for as long as he was. We need to get him out. I know the charges have been dropped. He needs medical attention reportedly. Kudos to everyone who helped make this happen, conservatives and liberals, Republicans and Democrats alike. This is the righting of a wrong. Glad to see it on The Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Earlier today here on The Guy Benson Show, we interviewed for the first time Jason Miaris, who is the attorney general in the great state of Virginia, the Commonwealth of Virginia. He's involved in several important investigations right now in Virginia. We asked him about a few of them. Here's part of that conversation. You have been involved in a number of important investigations prying into a story that we've been covering pretty heavily on this show, which is the scandal in northern Virginia emanating from Fairfax County, but I know now it's in a few other counties as well, where students were not told that they had received a very prestigious and significant academic accolade. And the allegation was that this information was withheld on a critical timeline for college application and admissions decisions because someone or someone's has decided uh, or had decided that equal outcomes was the goal. It would be unfair and not equitable to let students know that they had achieved something at a very high level. And so the announcements and those, I guess, notifications had been delayed. And it started at one prominent high school in northern Virginia in Fairfax County, TJ, Thomas Jefferson. Then it was like three schools, then seven schools. Last I saw, it was like 17 schools in the region had done something like this. Give us like the quick background into how your investigation got started and what's the basis for the investigation? Because some people might say, well, that's awful. That seems like, you know, wokeness gone crazy or run amok. Is it necessarily something that the state needs to get involved with, like from some sort of investigative perspective? Talk about the legal side of it, if you would. Well, yeah, I appreciate you having me on. So the, the background on this is we know Michelle Reed, the superintendent of Fairfax Schools, that they engaged a equity consultant. Uh, they paid this individual about $455,000 for about nine months of worth of work. Uh, one of their recommendations to the school district was that they seek equal outcomes for every student without exception. That was their advice, not my advice. Um, they further said that to achieve these mandatory equal outcomes, it may mean that you have to intentionally treat some students unequally. 
we have a state anti-discrimination statute in Virginia. It's called the Virginia Human Rights Act. You cannot deny anyone either uh, a, a benefit uh, or a state admission at a school or any any benefit whatsoever based on the racial or ethnic background. We know that from over a thousand students have been affected. We know in Fairfax that over 70% of the students that were receiving its national merit recognition were Asian American. And so this is actually two branches of the same tree as far as the investigation. Uh, you asked how this got on our radar. The actual uh, beginning of this was actually the admissions policy at Thomas Jefferson High School. It is a public high school. It's a magnet school. You have to apply to attend. It is widely considered one of the best public high schools in the entire country. In fact, it was ranked number one recently by Deuce News and World Report. And we started getting complaints from Asian American parents. Uh, they adopted a new equity, they quote unquote equity based uh, admissions policy in which in just one year, you saw a 20 point drop in enrollment of Asian American students, not because suddenly their grades weren't good is suddenly they went away from a merit based admission system to a quote equity based system. My full interview with Virginia Attorney General Jason Miaris, available at GuyBensonShow.com. That whole conversation, and then the whole show start to finish for free, on demand, no charge, on our podcast, GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, it's the home stretch. Got a couple things to discuss today, including a debate over tipping, where you should, where you shouldn't. Some of my teammates think it's getting totally out of control. We'll debate that next. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on this Wednesday on the Guy Benson Show. Glad to have you all along. GuyBensonShow.com, podcast free every day. Just a quick update here that I want to bring you. We had mentioned earlier in the week that Quiet Wyatt, not so quiet, as he moved out of his old apartment building, very displeased with management, he had made that frustration known. I got an earful, actually, from Wyatt, uncharacteristically. And he had put together a very sternly worded email to the team at his erstwhile building. And Wyatt... Has there been a response? There actually has been in the past few minutes. There, I got a uh, a statement of move out back uh, to me, and I won't say what's in it, but I will say that it was signed, kindest regards from the management <laughs> in the building. So <laughs> passive aggressive. Did they address any of your concerns or complaints at all? Not my complaints, but my one question was answered. But that's that's not good enough. Not good enough. All right, so what is your game plan here? Because you were threatening to forward your sternly worded email up the food chain. Yeah, I mean, just an apology or we dropped the ball and blah, blah, blah. But there's no acknowledgement of what took place. So, yeah, I think it's going to have to go up a, a level higher than, than what, we, what we did in the last email. Mm-hmm. Now, if that results in... Nothing, right? Because now you're dealing with people maybe even in another city or people who don't really have any knowledge of your building. It might get harder and harder for this entity to take you seriously or to actually feel like they have to be responsive to you. So, I mean, we'll see. Hopefully they will recognize here is a tenant 
who was a good tenant, and we lost him, and we mistreated him, and just for the sake of the company broadly, let's make amends or at least apologize. That's possible. I would say that I am skeptical. I'm dubious that that will happen. And may I make a suggestion? Okay. I think that if you do not get a satisfactory response in a timely manner from the next level up, I think it's time to involve one cookie producer, Christine. She can be relentless. Annoying is not a word that I would use, but she could go some kind of combination of Jersey and Strassel on these people. And I feel like within a matter of days, certainly weeks, you might get like a free month's rent refund or something just to make her stop. What do you think of that? I don't know. I mean, depending on how hard I want to go, I think the next step is going to be a strongly worded review for the public to see. Mm-hmm. And usually when you put those reviews out and they're not kind, they will ask, they will reach out to you and ask you, you know, blah, blah, blah. So maybe that's how I get their attention. But if that doesn't work, then we might have to bring in Christine. Okay. So Christine is like the ace in the hole. Like if you're up against a wall with no options left and, you know, she's a very busy person. In between her many vacations, she's producing this radio show. She's, you know, constantly doing stuff at her daughter's school, though really forgetting to do a lot of those things. But in that busy schedule, because she is, quote, unquote, your best friend or you are her best friend, among others, I think this is something that she might be willing to undertake on your behalf. Christine, would you go after these people as if it's Kimberly Strassel at 6 o'clock in the morning as you're trying to book her? On a weekend. On a weekend. Yes, Yes. I will. For my bestie, Wyatt. (laughs) I mean, just, I mean, let's forget the strongly worded review. Like, just give me the number already. Let me have it. I got this for you, YY. I kind of like the sequence, though, where you've got the first email with an unacceptable response. A second email, I'm assuming no response or unacceptable response. Then step three would be a public review where they might reach out being like, oh, we don't like this. People thinking about our building might see this and not want to move in. This could affect the bottom line. Therefore, suddenly we care. But if even that does not deter them, I think that's the time to bring out the heavy guns. And the bazooka of cookies, relentless emails, texting, phone calls, I mean, showing up at someone's door. I wouldn't be surprised if that were to happen. And sometimes these are... I would say downsides to producer Christine, but sometimes they're assets. This could be one of those circumstances. And I feel like Christine almost would, am I right about this, Christine? You'd almost take pleasure in doing this. Well, I was going to say, I like the the way he's going to go with it too. You go passive aggressive, then with Christine, it's just straight up aggressive aggressive. Yes. So that's right, the way exactly. to go. Yes, from polite to slightly less polite to publicly passive-aggressive to full-blown aggressive-aggressive. That seems like, again, a sequence that would be understandable, if not advisable in this circumstance. I mean, I'm the perfect gal for the job. I mean, Dan, on a daily basis, gets to watch me go, don't you, Dan? It's fascinating. She was just talking to someone, being like, how do you like me stalking you? I mean, all she has to do is get on the phone with one of these people and treat them like a caller when she's screening calls. 
and I think they'd be quaking in their boots why it would get an apology, like a framed apology and a check in the mail at some point. So keep that in your back pocket, Wyatt. I'm just saying. Now, also in your back pocket, listen to this transition, is your wallet. And your wallet seems to be getting ever lighter these days, not just because of inflation, which remains painfully high, but because of this growing expectation of tipping almost everywhere. And there's an Associated Press story about this phenomenon. Headline, is tipping getting out of control? Many consumers say yes, many people are saying. And the story begins this way. Across the country, there's a silent frustration brewing about an age-old practice that many say is getting out of control, tipping. Some fed-up customers are posting rants on social media, kind of like why it might be doing soon, about something else, complaining about tip requests at drive throughs while others say they're tired of being asked to leave a gratuity for a muffin or a simple cup of coffee at their neighborhood bakery. What's next, they wonder. Are we going to be tipping our doctors and dentists too? And the story goes on to talk about these automatic prompts where they'll like, you know, turn the iPad around and it's like, would you like to leave a tip? And then you have to sort of say no to their faces and people feel bad about that. Or there's like an automatic 20% that's already highlighted and you have to unselect it if you want to give them less or no tip. Even in these little like quick interactions where it's not sit down service, this came up on the phone call earlier, our show planning call. Wyatt and Christine both getting after it. They've had enough. They are among the Americans saying it's too much, it's too far. Wyatt, what is your line here? Well, I just think it's it's kind of ridiculous how, you know, you go to a coffee shop or a bakery and, you know, you're ordering whatever and it, things are expensive from what they were a few, you know, years ago and in inflation and then they flip around the iPad thing, and they're, like, asking for a tip. And I'm like, you you only just poured my coffee, and not, you didn't really do anything. You didn't prepare anything. You're not, you're not a waiter. You're not a bartender where you're, you're actually actively doing something that has something to it. I, I mean, I don't know. But I think it's just ridiculous to be adding on, like, a dollar, two, three, four dollars to a, a, you know, coffee order. Christine? So I generally – I tip well to, say, a table service that I'm having. Obviously, all of my favorite bartenders are getting tipped very, very well. <laughs> and delivery people. But that's, that's, that's probably why they call you tipsy. How do I walk into these things? <laughs> Go on. I uh, <laughs> And delivery people. So, obviously, I tip also my delivery people but that is it i agree with yy if i'm spending 18 dollars on like a tossed salad i am not tipping them no way yeah i'm definitely a tipper on sit down service usually 20 percent, just standard if you're getting less than 20 percent for me it's because something has gone like clearly obviously very wrong and then delivery service yep i definitely tip there that's a schlep. But if I'm the one doing the schlepping, right, if I'm showing up there and just standing at a counter, I'm usually not inclined to tip. Sometimes I will anyway. And part of it also is like these people are trying to make a living as well. And they're also facing inflation in their lives. And so it's sort of this tough cycle and spiral for everyone to a certain extent. So when I can, 
help someone in the service industry, you're on your feet. It's not easy. It's sometimes not fun. I worked in restaurants for years, like in the summertime. It's not glamorous or easy work, so I try to tip here and there. But, like, yeah, if you're just getting a cup of coffee, which I never do, I'm a coffee drinker. But, like, if I were to go to a little convenience store and buy a Coke Zero and I go and open the thing, the cooler, and pull out my 20-ounce soda and walk over and get a little packet of peanut M&Ms and the spokesperson, the candy spokesperson, Maya Rudolph, whatever that's about these days, and I put down my credit card, I'm not going to tip the 7-Eleven cashier. And I understand there's, like, different gradations of this. A cashier might be a little bit different than a barista or someone at some kind of a cafe where they're kind of preparing something in a fast, casual sort of way. But, like, I wouldn't tip at a fast food restaurant. So, I don't know. Sometimes it's just kind of what comes to me in the moment of what feels right. But I do think that there's a growing expectation or growing pressure in different contexts to tip more than there has been. And I can see why some people would say, it's getting too much, I'm drawing some lines, and I'm not going to bow, I'm not going to cave to the pressure. I just sometimes feel like these people are trying to make their lives work too. And we all have bills to pay. So it's just a balancing act for me. I don't have a hard and fast rule on this. I just kind of, I don't know, feel it in the moment whether this makes sense or not. Dan, do you have anything to add? I'm an always tipper um, with everything. Uh, my mom worked in the service industry. but with Everything? Oh, yes, I am. But I was, what I was going to say is for things like coffee, I do do the tip, but I think I do it just because it's like social pressure too. Like I don't think I want to really. Like I don't think it, it's well-deserved. Wait, do you tip at like McDonald's? No, 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 nothing like that. I meant like more like um, service industry, like anything you had talked about. But that's service industry. I know. There's people, you know, making your Big Mac back there or whatever. Well, I, what I was going to ask you guys too is what if you do takeaway at a restaurant? And you just go pick it up yourself. Do you tip there? So I generally do tip in a takeout order, but less than I would for a sit-down or for a delivery. Same, exactly. So I'll do like a little nominal tip. Part of the reason that I do it is because when I worked at an Italian restaurant in high school, usually one or two nights a week, Pasta e Polo was the name of the place, I was in charge. I was the host, so I would seat people, but that was, you know, it was like 14 tables. So, you know, it wasn't always a huge amount of work, but I fielded phone calls, took to-go orders, and delivered those bags to the customer as they came in. We didn't deliver, but they would come in, and I would have their order ready. And whenever someone would tip me for the work that I did, I would feel good. I was always grateful. Sometimes the tips were generous, which was like make-my-day territory. And so I remember that back to my 16-year-old self. So I do try to tip in that context, I would say, usually. But the more work I'm doing and the less work they're doing, the less inclined I am to tip, like, in the moment. That's kind of the sliding scale. Maybe that's my rule that I just sort of came up with, hadn't articulated it before. We got to go. We could probably talk about this much longer, have some of our best guests on, to talk about this but alas we're up against the clock back here tomorrow same time same place for the guy benson show thank you so much for listening have a great night
with the power of over 100 meteorologists and the worldwide resources of Fox in your hands with the Fox Weather Podcast. Precise, personal, powerful. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcast, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.